The scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Please give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I will never forget the day my life changed forever. The day where my firstborn came into this world, February 23rd, 2004. I was only 28 years old at the time, and I remember feeling that I had no idea what I was doing. It was the first night where I was holding Megan in my arms, and she was crying, and I was trying to soothe her, get her to calm down so that my wife, who after a long labor, could get a good night's rest. And I remember thinking, no matter what I'm doing, what position she's in, how much I rock her, she wouldn't stop crying, and I felt utterly overwhelmed realizing that I am way in over my head when it comes to being a father. When my daughter was a year and a half, uh, I took her to go pick up some food from a Chinese restaurant for takeout. I remember parking in the parking lot, getting out, unbuckling my daughter, and setting her on the ground, holding her hand to walk over to the restaurant. However, there was a problem. The moment we took our first steps towards the restaurant, she fell flat on her face. And so I picked her up, dusted off her knees, held her hand, and proceeded to walk over again. To which, a couple steps later, she fell again. And so I pick her up, because the parking lot is obviously really dirty, carry her in my arms into the restaurant. Now we're in the carpeted foyer of the restaurant. I set her down, hold her hand, and make our way over to the hostess, to which she fell again. At this point, I started panicking because my daughter, who learned how to walk a few months before, suddenly forgot how to walk. (laughs) And so she's on the ground, and the hostess makes her way around and picks her up. And then she says, <laughs> which in Korean means OMG. And she pointed at Megan's pants and started laughing. And I looked over to see both of her legs <laughs> jutted out of one pant leg. Oh, no. And so, of course she can't walk because I dressed her up like a pogo stick, right? <laughs> It's, it's hard to walk with only one leg, right? And, and you would think that my fatherly abilities would improve since then. But over the years, I continue to be challenged. Just when I get the hang of things, my kids get older and enter a new stage, and I find myself back at square one. Well, this morning... I wanted to talk about parenting. I know that not all of you are parents here, but if you're a member of this church, that means you're part of this church 
family, and that means you are an uncle or an aunt to the millions of kids who call New Life home. The calling to raise children is undoubtedly one of the most rewarding callings God can give us. At the same time, it can also be one of the most challenging, heartbreaking callings God can give us. The love we have for our children has no equal. It's the reason why so many of us move to Irvine in the first place. We move here because we heard that the schools were good. We heard that the city is safe because of the many parks that are around. We move to Irvine and pay its special tax, a.k.a. Melorus, because it's a great place to raise children. Yet one thing I've learned over the years is that it's a lot easier to provide for your children than it is to raise them. It's a lot easier to provide a warm meal and some clothes than it is to disciple them so that they might mature and grow in the ways of the Lord. How many of us start our day promising ourselves, today I'm going to do better, to only discover before the end of the day that we're yelling and screaming at our kids once again. How many of you wonder how a three-year-old little toddler could have so much power over you that that pint-sized child could drive you so crazy and get you so angry? How many of us feel like we can't ask our teenagers to do anything? that a simple request automatically leads to a battle because a request is interpreted as a challenge to them. How many of us go to bed exhausted, wake up exhausted, and feel like nothing you do, no matter how many books you read or how many podcasts you listen to on parenting, it amounts to nothing. How many of us feel like we're not a good enough mom or a good enough dad? We feel like we failed our children. We know they deserve better. And we see the clock. We know that our time with them is limited. Time is running out and you only have one chance to raise your child and yet you've made so many mistakes that you feel like you cannot undo. Well, I've got good news for you. The Bible provides us with not only guidance, but especially hope. Our God is not a cruel God who asks us to do something that we are not resourced to do. He has given us his word, which serves as a roadmap for us that helps us navigate this journey of parenting. Far too many of us go about the task of parenting with nothing but our intuition and what we saw from our parents growing up. But let me tell you, your intuition and what you learn from your parents is insufficient. It's not enough. 
what we need to do is avail ourselves to the wisdom of God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit. And so for the next two weeks, I'm going to go over foundational pillars of parenting. I want to teach you some basic principles God has laid out for us to help us with this important endeavor. Today, this morning, I'm going to cover two of these pillars. The first pillar is a simple one, and it is this. When it comes to parenting, we need to remember that there is a God, and you are not him. Did he not remind us that this morning? There is a God, and you are not him. We are not our kids, God. And our passage implicitly states this. In verse 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He anchors a child's obedience ultimately in the Lord, so that when the children obeys, who they're really ultimately obeying is God. And then in verse 4, he underscores this again. He says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He says, Parents, train them up, not according to instructions of your life, of your wants and wishes, but instructions of the Lord, because after all, you are not their God, I am. And so what this means is that our kids do not belong to us. We don't own our kids. Godly parenting begins with the radical and humble recognition that our children do not belong to us They belong to God. Instead of owners, parents are more like ambassadors. This is a point that Paul Tripp makes in his book on parenting. An ambassador is an official diplomat sent by a country to represent them to another land. An ambassador is not free to represent his own views, policies, and convictions. No, an ambassador's job is to represent his country's views, policies, and convictions. Can you imagine the uproar if the U.S. ambassador to North Korea told North Korea, you know what, the U.S. is totally okay with your nuclear proliferation program. Go for it. We love it. And all these human rights violations, we really don't care either. That ambassador would be fired on the spot. In the same way, parenting is ambassadorial work. God has entrusted you with the responsibility in this season of your kids' lives to be his ambassador to them. You are called then to represent his convictions, his character, his kindness, his patience, his justice, his holiness, his kingdom. The goal is that through our provision, 
care, protection, guidance, discipline, and love, our children will get a glimpse of who God really is. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, parents are called to reflect the light of our Heavenly Father to our children. We want to raise them up so that our children might find their deepest joy and satisfaction in their Creator God. We want to raise our children up so that they might discover that the most beautiful life, the most abundant and full life is a life that lives in humble dependence and service of our great king. That's the goal. Unfortunately, because of sin, we forget this basic truth. We forget that there is a God, and so we become God to ourselves. And when we believe that we are God, then what inevitably happens is that we will try to shape them into our own image. We will envision for them what success looks like. We will determine what sports they play, what musical instruments they enjoy, what interests they shall pursue. We will demand that they will excel and succeed according to what we believe is good for them. And we'll crack the whip because after all, these kids are ours and they need to succeed. Dear friends, our kids don't belong to us. They belong to God. We are but ambassadors. We are called to represent his kids for him. And so we ought to raise our kids up in a way that is evidence of the one who ultimately owns them. That is our God. This brings us to the second pillar, and it's closely related to the first one. When it comes to parenting, we need to remember that not only are we not God, but we need to remember that they are not God. As much as we must guard against the danger of deifying ourselves, we also need to guard against the danger of deifying our children. And when I look at the city of Irvine, I find that this danger is far more prevalent than the first one. There are way more people who deify their children than they do themselves. And the reason why it's so common is because for a lot of us, we don't see anything wrong with living for our children. We don't see anything wrong with centering our lives on our children. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, what's wrong with that? I'm a mom. I'm a dad. My whole life is my kids. If that is wrong, Jeff and I don't want to be right. Well, this is why we need the Bible. 
If we simply live by our gut or what feels or seems right to us, then yes, it might look like there's nothing wrong with living for your children. But one of the clear teachings of the Bible is this. Man was created to center his life on God. Our fundamental purpose and design is to live in communion to him. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Our lives were meant to orbit around God, not our children. Unfortunately, we make a mess of this design. Instead of living for God, we find ourselves living for the things of this world. We elevate secondary goods and make them primary. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. Idols are false gods, imitation gods, counterfeit gods. They are good things of the world that we turn into a God thing. They are good things that we make an ultimate thing. So, for example, you and I can agree that pursuing academic success is a good desire. We want to excel and try our best and do what we can to get good grades. But we know that that good desire has become a God desire when we're willing to cheat and plagiarize, when we're willing to sabotage our fellow students so that we might get ahead. That good desire has become an ultimate one. That's idolatry. The same can be true of career success. There's nothing wrong with wanting to prove yourself at work, to work hard so that you can climb the ranks and get the recognition you deserve. But if you're willing to neglect your health and neglect your family, if you spend all of your waking moments in the office, then you know that good desire has become a God desire. It's become an idol. Whether it's money, pleasure, fame, or beauty, anything and everything can become a potential God. And the number one God, in my opinion, in the city of Irvine is children. Is it a good desire to love and want what's best for your children? Absolutely. But let's not make that good desire to become a God desire. It's one thing for us to raise children up for the glory of God. It's quite another when your children become your glory. And this warning against idolizing our children is found in verse 4. Paul says, quote, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. That verb translated as stir up anger can also be translated as provoke, exacerbate, or embitter. Paul's words may seem somewhat confusing because how in the world do you raise your children up in the instruction of the Lord without angering them, right? You tell your kids you can't have ice cream for breakfast, they're going to get mad. You tell your kids you need to go to bed right now, they're going to get angry at you. You tell your kids no more screen time and they're going to be 
you know, their rage will come out at you, right? I mean, it's virtually impossible to raise them up in the ways of the Lord without getting them upset. And so what in the world is Paul saying here? Clearly, he didn't have any kids, right? But when you look up the word that Paul uses here, it's a, it's a very specific word for anger. What helps is when you look at the Old Testament usage of this word. When you look at the Greek Old Testament, this word for anger is found 57 times in the Old Testament. And of those 57 times, 50 of its occurrences describe God's anger. And guess why God's angry? It's God's anger that is provoked by Israel's idolatry. 50 of the 57 times, God's angry at Israel's idolatry. For example, Deuteronomy 4, 25, when you have children and grandchildren have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, angering him. That's that word. And so the, the anger that Paul is forbidding us to provoke in our children is an anger that is a result of our own idolatry. What Paul is warning us against is committing idolatry with our children, idolizing our children. And so what does that mean, Jeff? What does it look like to idolize your children? It's so opaque and vague. Well, if an idol is a counterfeit God, then what it means is this. It means looking to your children to give you what only God can give. It's looking to your children to give you what only God can give. For example, to idolize your kids is to look to them for your significance and identity. Your self-worth is wrapped up in their performance, whether it's their performance at home with compliance, performance at school, or the baseball diamond, or the dance studio. Your self-worth rises and falls with their successes and their failures. And since your identity is tethered to their performance, you are going to over-personalize their failures and over-personalize their successes. Since you've tethered your significance to them, you're either going to become crushed and demoralized when they fail you, or you're going to get infuriated and outraged when they fail you. Regardless, you're going to overreact when you idolize your kids. Because when they fail, it means you've failed. It's about you at the end of the day. When you idolize your child, you need them to achieve. You need them to be successful. You need them to win, not for their well-being, but for your well-being. Your children become a way for you to validate your existence, to prove your self-worth. This explains why some parents act the way they do at their kids' sports games. You think they're playing for the World Series or the World Cup, 
but it's a U5 league where they don't even keep score. Why? Because it's their significance, their self-worth on the line. This explains why some parents helicopter over their kids, making sure their kids don't get harmed or don't get dissed by a friend or there's no injustices that are occurring. We're so afraid to let our kids fail. Why? Because if they get hurt, we're hurt. If they fail, we're a failure. And so idolatry isn't just living for your kids, but it's living through your kids. We make our kids about us. But unfortunately, when you center your life, your hopes and dreams on your kids, you just end up crushing them. This is why Paul says, don't provoke your kids to anger. Our kids were not designed to carry the burden of our hopes and dreams on their shoulders. They were not created for your validation. They were not created for your self-worth. Life is hard enough. The last thing our kids need is for them to carry the weight of our significance on their shoulders. That's not fair to them. That will only embitter them. I'll never forget the sight of a young mother bent down holding her three-year-old daughter. We were outside the closed doors of a church. I was late to a wedding. And before the bride can walk down the aisle, what needs to happen first? The flower girl needs to go in. Unfortunately for this three-year-old, she decided to change her mind, which is understandable. Hundreds of people staring at you. That's not easy for even adults to do. And yet for this young mother, she was shaking this girl, screaming at her. My heart broke. My heart broke because the reason why she was being screamed at is not because she was bad, but it's because she made her mom look bad. This girl was being punished for her mom's idolatry. Now, why do we do this to our children? And none of us ever intend to do this. Why do we unfairly tether our significance and self-worth to them? Well, the reason is because of sin in us. You see, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us are born incomplete. We're all born with dysfunctional, uh, faulty hearts. And we quickly realize that we are not the person we want to be we quickly realize that we can't be as obedient as our parents want us to be. We can't be as smart as we want to be. We can't be as athletic. We can't be as musical. And so we, we come to the sober realization that there's something wrong with me, and we feel this sense of guilt and shame 
over our humanity. And this is where idols come in. Because you see, idols aren't just functional gods. They're actually functional saviors. Idols say to us, if you bow down to me, I will redeem you of your guilt and shame. If you bow down to me, I will make you whole. I will give you the significance that you crave. I will turn you into a somebody. And so the idol of money convinces us, if you make this many digits, then you are somebody. You've proved yourself to yourself and to the world that you are worthy. Career, if you publish this many books, if you become partner in the firm, if you have this many followers on Instagram, then that proves you are a somebody. You've validated yourself. You've proved that you are worthy. Children, if your children grow up to be a certain way according to your own image, then you've just shown the world how worthy you are. That's idolatry. Some of you may have heard that yesterday Matthew Perry was found dead, famous from Friends. They don't know the cause of his death, but I was reading about it this morning in the LA Times, and they put this quote from a book, a memoir that he wrote a few years ago. He says this, Nobody wanted to be famous more than me. I was convinced it was the answer. I was 25. It was the second year of Friends and eight months into it. I realized the American dream is not making me happy, not filling the holes in my life. I couldn't get enough attention. Fame does not do what you think it's going to do. It was all a trick. He looked to fame to prove his significance but dear friends there's a better way instead of looking to the things of the world to prove your worth look to jesus this is the reason why he came into the world 2000 years ago he came into this world to prove to everyone that you are a somebody that you are significant, that you are worth it. He came into this world to rescue us from our sin and our failures by living the perfect life you and I were supposed to live and by dying a sinner's death, the death that you and I deserved to die. And by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he declares to us that all the significance, all the worth, all the validation that our souls crave are found abundantly in Jesus Christ. And so that significance your heart craves, that affection you hope to, to experience, the peace you long for, it's not found in money, your career, or your children. It's found in Jesus and Him alone. 
And so for those of you who have not put your hope and faith in Jesus, for those of you who have lost your way and find yourself bowing down to a functional counterfeit Savior, I urge you, don't waste your life by worshiping something that will never satisfy. Look to Jesus alone who lived and died for you for that satisfaction. And so here's the key to success. If you want to be a godly mom or a godly dad, if you want to be a godly parent to your children, then you need to remember that before you are a parent, you are a child. You're a child who feels lonely, who feels hungry, who feels like something's missing. But I pray that as you feel who you are, that you will climb into the lap of our Heavenly Father and let Him love you. Let Him hold you. Let Him affirm you. Bask in His grace, His tenderness, His kindness, and His love. Satiate yourself in the arms of our Heavenly Father. Climb into the lap of your God every morning and experience His loving grace. Then you won't be tempted to be God to your children. Then you won't be tempted to deify your children. Then you can let God be God and you be his child and you parent out of that healthy, life-giving relationship. That's the key to godly parenting, to remember that you are first God's child and to experience his perfect love and to administer out of that love so that our children might see a reflection of who he is through us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we sang earlier, there will never be a moment where we outlive or outgrow our need for you. We need you, O oh Lord. We need you to be our God, our Savior, our all in all, our righteousness, our shield, our reputation. We need you to be our everything because we know that nothing in this world can fill your shoes. Nothing in this world can give us what only you can give. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that you have given us your son and that in him we are made whole, that in him we thrive and flourish. And it is our longing and deep desire that our children will come to the same conclusion that they will taste and see that there is no one better than you. 
And so, Lord, give us that grace we desperately need as your children and help us to extend the same grace to our children. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.